uh, where all the business really took place. And what would happen is they would get these stockpiles of food in, and because we would get there before the food's been sorted through, uh, Kevin and I would have the opportunity to dig through it, and we were just these power bar junkies. If you want to know what to get me for Christmas, power bars. I don't know why. Uh, just from high school, I thought I could get buff eating protein bars. It never quite worked out for me. But I grew this love for power bars, and I realized that at the bargain mart, you could get some that were two or three years old that actually made it a little weird because your dentist bill went up when you chipped your tooth, but you saved. Anyone cheap in church today? Are you cheap? All right, I'm cheap. And so I would eat these, these bars, and I would get them just in the hundreds. I had one time Erica, who sang on stage today, she was on staff with us for many years. She, she knows I would have hundreds of these expired bars sitting in my office. And uh, the thing about it, the thrill of the hunt, it was kind of like the Goonies where you hunted for treasure. The thrill of the hunt was there would be these massive boxes. And in the boxes was anything and everything. And I remember one time asking Ted, as I was sorting through the boxes, I said, why, why is all of this junk together. Why is it that you can find, you know, five-year expired diapers right next to a power bar? And he said to me, he said, we pay by the pound. It's a package deal. We pay by the pound. It's a package deal. So here's where I'm going with that today. Jesus and John, cousins, brothers in the faith, both murdered for the cause Jesus and John, from the beginning of the time all of this takes place, are a package deal. They come in the big box. It's pre-established. John's role in the package deal is to prepare the way for Jesus, and his entire message is repentance. He is a prophet of old. He does not mince words, and he sets the stage for his cousin, Jesus, who is going to usher in salvation. They were the greatest one-two punch of all time. They were the greatest package deal of all time. Because sometimes, just like expired power bars, the best things come in a package deal. And so as we enter into this story, I want you to be thinking in terms of this package deal. We're going to see John's death, and it's going to play out in a way that's a bit odd. It's going to start and fast forward, and then a few verses in, it's going to get to the backstory. And so John's already dead as the story picks up, but now you're going to hear from Mark through the lens of Peter the backstory, the story behind the story. And so the way the story sets up is in chapter 6, as we walk through this text, that Jesus himself is shunned in his hometown. He can do very few miracles. He, you can see that. You can read that on your own as chapter 6 starts. And then the Bible talks about the Word of God being let loose and the power of God on display before you walk into the story of King Herod. And so what happens is Jesus empowers his disciples and they go preaching the good news. And the Bible says that the lame walk, that people are healed, that, that, things are, that demons are being cast out, and that the world is taking notice because the power of God is on display. And so now Herod, who's killed John, hears about what's going on, and here's what the Bible says in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Turn there with me. You can be on your phones. You can look on the screen. Maybe you have a hardback copy of the Bible. You can find one under your seat if you're in church at the North Campus this morning, but check this out. The Bible says this, that King Herod heard of it. He heard of all that was going on. He wasn't seeing it firsthand. He was a bit removed in his castle that he was living in. 
And King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. When you do things that Jesus is doing, like Greg talked about at the beginning of service, when you see dead being raised, when you see demons cast out, when you see leprosy cured, all of a sudden, that type of information gets out. So he's hearing about Jesus. The name of Jesus had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And so Herod's worst nightmare is coming true. He's having heart palpitations and anxiety through the roof. His blood pressure is skyrocketing because he knows something. He knows the backstory. He knows, he knows one of two things. Number one, this is a huge lie. Or number two, this is true, and he chopped off the guy's head who's now doing all of these things, and he's in massive, massive trouble if he can be raised from the dead. And so his anxiety is going crazy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some backstory to the text. If you like backstories, if you like history, I'm going to give you kind of the Reader's Digest version of this backstory, but it's very interesting. And without knowing the backstory, the story is not going to be as good. Herod has a dad. Any Bible history major buffs out there, his dad is also Herod. In fact, Herod Jr. is one of many Herod Juniors. Herod's dad also has a role in the Bible, and it's when Jesus is a baby. And this Christmas, we'll walk through this story as we spend a few weeks before Christmas in the Christmas story. But King Herod is his dad, and King Herod is a bigger deal than the Herod, the Tetrarch, in this story, because what happens is this. King Herod is ruling and reigning over Israel, and then he, he knows he's going to die. He knows that he won't live forever, and so he starts writing his will. And in his will, he takes his kingdom that's over Israel and under the authority of Caesar. He's still not in complete control, but he has some power, and he divides it amongst four of his Herod juniors. The Bible says, or actually history tells us, that this Herod had ten wives, and he had many kids, and he picks these four sons to now have this kingdom broken into four parts and so in this story, what you see with this Herod, now years later, is kind of a mid-level manager. And as he's leading in a mid-level management position, the Bible portrays him in a way where if you don't know the backstory, it doesn't quite make sense. He's not in, just tuck this away in the back of your mind, he's not in complete control. In fact, in a few verses, he's going to make some promises that logistically he probably could not keep because he's not Caesar, he's not in control, he's just a mid-level manager. And so when Herod Sr. dies, the, Josephus talks about it through the lens of, uh, this is just history stuff about 80 years A.D., he talks about him being an evil and vicious and blood-loving man, and as he breaks the part, uh, his four kingdoms, he gives them to his four sons, and this Herod gets one of them. This is what Josephus says about his dad, this is when you know that you didn't serve the Lord of life it's in life. It says that, that Herod died of maggot-filled organs, foul breath, and constant convulsions. Was he loved or hated? He's hated. All right? this, this is something that's found in extra-biblical material. And so it, the, the bottom line is Jewish people hated this guy. And so now he has these sons, and this son rules over Galilee. And because he's a mid-level guy, one of his functions before Caesar is to keep the peace and to exercise authority as needed. And so when he hears on a very practical level that people are believing that John the Baptist 
is Jesus, and he's been raised from the dead. He's scared because he knows the backstory, but he's also paranoid because he knows if there's a populist movement that arises, that it could mean his own takedown. And so it says in verse 16, you see his paranoia, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. These are kind of the rantings of a paranoid man. John the beheaded has been raised, and he has this now flashback where Mark's going to tell this story of how he knows, for practical purposes, that John the Baptist shouldn't be doing anything because John the Baptist is very much dead. And it's this story of pride and fear. It is one of the most intense stories in the book of Mark. It is sad. It is disheartening. It is angering. Every sense of justice in you is going to be raised here this morning. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And so, guys, here's where the soap opera begins. Here's where things kind of start to make sense. And what I love about this story is that 2,000 years later, we always talk about we have it so bad, things are so dark. It's true, but just keep in mind, it's been this way since the apple was eaten. This stuff's been going on for a long time. There's nothing new under the sun. Buckle up. It is about to get nasty. His wife was not a legitimate wife. The marriage was illegitimate. She was married to his brother. She was actually physically related to him. And the story is gross and the story is complicated. And this woman is not a godly woman. Men, hear me say this. Everyone pay attention online, downtown. Everyone hear me say this this morning. Men, there are some women that you just simply want to stay away from, and this is one of those women, okay? Women, are we awake? There are some men that you want to stay away from, and this is one of those men. The Bible talks about her divorcing her husband. He leaves his wife, and they live anything but happily ever after. There's consequences to this sin that they're walking in. And the Bible says this in verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, here's why she's mad. Here's why John's been arrested. Here's why he's living in a basement prison for over a year. Here's what the Bible says in verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In different contexts and different interpretations of the verbiage of this statement, It's a repeated type of statement. It wasn't a one-and-done deal. He's saying it repeatedly. He's like a tap on Herod's forehead. He's like a tap on his new wife's, illegitimate wife's forehead, where they're hearing the repercussions of their sin over and over again. This guy, John the Baptist, never mints his words. Even when he's in a prison cell, he's still saying this to Herod. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. The Bible says this, but she could not. And check out verse 20. For Herod feared John, and knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I want to ask you this question. Do you have anyone like that in your life where maybe before you were even a Christian, they would say things to you that were offensive, but for some reason you kept coming back for more? There's just this gift that some people have where they could offend you greatly, but you still want to hear more 
about what's going on in their life and how they're telling you you're wrong. This is usually the precursor for you getting saved. This is what's going on. It doesn't end so well for Herod, but for some reason, and we know the some reason, right? It's supernatural. But for some reason, he just wants to hear more about what's going on with the words of John the Baptist. And I could just imagine him as he knows his wife doesn't just want him in prison. That was kind of the happy medium. Her ultimate goal is death, and she's going to get it. But can you just imagine the dialogue between the guards and, and Herod as he knows there's this conflict with his wife who's growing in her resentment and growing in her sabotage? Could you imagine this interaction where he probably is having to go to the guards and he's saying, look, you know and I know my wife's a little crazy. If she comes to you and says, kill him, go and get me, just appease her, just say, okay, ma'am, I got to go talk to her, just get me, I don't want this guy dead. He knows that something is different about John the Baptist. And here's scene two, the Bible says but, and when the Bible says but, you know there's a shift in the narrative. Verse 21 says this, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is the old-fashioned good old boys club. This was the who's who of the time. The social elite come together. They're powerful. They're upper-level tax collectors. And so you have Gentiles and Jews that would have been at this party together. There would have been military leaders. And, and the way that this is telling us this story, they were people that would have been over about 1,000 soldiers, so they were bigwigs. And so it's his birthday, and they're all getting together for this man's event. There's gluttony. There's alcohol. There's perversion. There's pride. There's just a bunch of gross men's stuff that's nauseating. Look at how it unfolds. Verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, just as a quick show of hands, who's heard this story? For the rest of you, buckle in. Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She probably would have been about 14 or 15 years old. She pleased Herod and his guests. Just stop there. I, I'm, I'm going to kind of just keep ad-libbing this thing. Don't put this too deep into the recesses of your mind because it's sinful. But think about for a second how this would have been playing out. He's getting these kind of that boys from the good old boys. She comes out. He already knows. In fact, more importantly, his wife already knows that this girl was very famous for getting attention. She had a job to do, and she did her job well. She's not an adult. Of course, in Bible times, things were different. She's very young. And this queen, out of her hatred towards John, is already sabotaging things. And as she's sabotaging this storyline, she's putting her own daughter on the altar before these older, disgusting, drunken, perverted men. And she's dancing, and everyone's liking what they're seeing. And he makes this prideful, arrogant, naive statement. He says, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. How many of you guys know he was drunk when he said that? Right? Drunk. Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'm going to give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. It's completely wasted. You don't have to raise your hand, but, but you know where I'm going, right? In a past life, you might have made some decisions that you go, wow, if I wouldn't have had alcohol, I wouldn't have done that. Ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And so here's what is super fascinating. Maybe you've never heard this before, 
Uh, I heard a, a preacher talk about this and then followed up with a commentary on it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is accurate. I'm going to read into this text. If Herod is a tetrarch, he's got one-fourth of the kingdom. He reports to Caesar in a way where there's probably someone over him, but he reports to Caesar, mid-level manager. He talks about a kingdom that's not his in a drunken state, and he makes a statement that I don't think that he can back up. He makes a statement built on pride and arrogance and alcohol and hobnobbing with military leaders of a thousand men. He looks around. Everyone likes what he sees. And, they, and he says something that he doesn't have permission to say. He says, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Here's the problem, you guys. This is man pride. The problem is this, it's not his kingdom to give, it's Rome's. He could not add to his territory or take away from his territory without the approval of Caesar himself. And so this bragging, weak, perverted little man needs to feel in control in front of his gross friends and he starts saying stuff that he can't back up. Because I've always heard the story from the, from the viewpoint of, man, why didn't she just take half the kingdom? I mean, was John the Baptist that great? where the hatred was, was so rich that, that she's going to choose his head over half the kingdom, although that can be true, there's another side to it. I think his wife knows he's blowing smoke. I think his wife knows he's just drunk. She's seen this before in his character or lack of character, and she says, I've got a better plan, and this is how the story ends. And she went out and she said to her mother, she's just a pawn in the game. She says, for what should I ask? And here's where the plot thickens, the height of the storyline. The mom's been waiting for this season. She says, ask for his head. And she came in immediately with haste to the king, and she said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because his oaths and his guests because of them, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. How degrading. I mean, it's one thing to die. But I think from just a degrading standpoint, it's a whole other thing to get a head chopped off. In fact, to even take it up a notch further, it's a whole other scenario to have your head chopped off at a dinner party, and then they serve it up on a platter. This wasn't just about someone losing their life. This was about an angry person that's vindictive wanting to get vengeance on this man. I can just kind of read into this story. How many times do you think John called him out? Five times, 10 times, 20 times? Everything we know about John the Baptist, it's probably about 100 times. It's the repeated storyline of you guys are sinning, you guys aren't serving the Lord, God's not going to tolerate this. It's over and over and over again. I can imagine this woman wants John the Baptist's head, and it has symbolic importance in her mind. And so Herod sees this head, he's probably devastated. He's seeing the repercussions of his failed leadership, and it probably wakes him up on some level out of his drunken state more than a cold shower ever could accomplish. He sees this head on this platter of this man who spoke truth into his life, even though he didn't want to hear it. This woman's heart is at a whole nother level. I think she wanted the head because she wanted the tongue. I don't know what she did with the head, but I can imagine she's going, this head that has caused me so much pain 
and so much disgust. Now I'm looking at it in its lifeless form, and I'm winning because I had the final say. But thank God there's more to the story. I think she wanted that tongue that wouldn't shut up over and over and over again. And so now Jesus, in the book of Matthew, you see, he goes to a secluded place. There's this package deal, and Jesus is hurting, and Jesus is grieving. He's grieving, number one, because that's his cousin. That's his front runner. That's the package deal before the beginning of time. It's already been you know, assessed. These two are going to do a great work. John is the best number two in any organization in the history of mankind. It's all about Jesus, and Jesus is sad for his cousin. And then in a very real way, I think this. I think Jesus is seeing his own death on a cross. He already knows the way this story is ending. He's seeing the depravity take place, and he's hurting. And so here's what I want us to walk in. I want us to learn a lesson from John. I want us to learn a lesson from Herod. And I want us to learn a lesson from Jesus. And here's where I would ask you to just write a few things down, because there's some takeaway here that I think is very rich and practical for our lives. Number one, the lesson from John, you have to lose to win. You want to hear some pins clicking? online. You have to lose to win. That's the narrative of Scripture. Anyone in here play basketball? Online, downtown, you play basketball? Um, I was about this close to the NBA, didn't quite make it. (laughs) Maybe this close. I love basketball. In fact, I'm not as good at basketball as a lot of people, but I love it, I think, as much as anybody. There's this game in basketball where you can duke it out with your friends. It's called 21. Anyone ever play 21? What happens at 19? I promise this has a point. At 19, if you play the way the rules are written, here's how it works, kind of like the price uh, price is right. You can't go over the price or you go back to zero. Okay? In the game of 21, you have to land. You play one-on-one-on-one-on-one-on-one. You can play with 50 people. But everyone's in it for themselves. It's just this great lesson in, in selfishness. But everyone's in it for themselves And everyone's goal in competing with each other is to get to 21. And so here's how the game works. When you get to 19, you get three free throws after you make a basket. If you get to 19 and you're already on your third free throw, if you make the next free throw, are you tracking with how this works? If you make the next free throw and you get to 20, then you have to go back down to 13 because you can't go over and the next basket you make is going to be 22. And so here's what people do. Everyone has to do it. It's really a weird game with weird rules, but it's just this basketball code where we'll always play 21, even if there's a better way to play basketball. Uh, But when you get to 19, what you do is you take the basket. Everyone knows it's coming. Here's the free throw line. You take the shot and you just chuck it against the front of the rim so you can get the ball back and score on 21. If you don't, you go backwards. You have to be willing to lose that point in 21 in order to ultimately win the game. And if you don't play 21, you're going, what are you talking about? Just just give me my moment because I want to feel like a basketball star. John played to win. And it was all about the long game. And so he knew that this life, when he wanted to win, when he wanted to obey, he knew that this life was not where it was at. 
He knew that his life was coming to an end. This wasn't a shocker to him when the executioner comes down the stairs into this cold prison cell and he realizes this is actually the time. I can't even imagine how many times he probably thought when he rested his head on a lack of a pillow in prison, this is probably the last night I'm ever going to live. He knew the narrative and what made this man great was that he followed God no matter what and he was willing to lose in the short-sighted game to win to get to 21. He was all about the long-term strategy, and he followed God no matter what. He's hearing this party take place. He's hearing probably some remnants of drunken arrogance take place upstairs. I don't know, maybe he can even hear the dance music of the girl that comes out. It's probably not her first dance in history. She's probably somewhat of a professional And in the sense of the term, at this point in the storyline, he knows that things are disgusting. And when he sees that executioner, look at me, when he sees that executioner come to these basement prison cell, he knows. In fact, I would be shocked just knowing the character of this man, that when they stretch him out and they prepare the sharp tools to take care of business, I would be shocked if he had any fight in him because he knows what we need to hear this morning that in order to win, we have to lose. And that doesn't mean that all of us, or most of us even, are going to face what John faced. But what it does mean in a very practical way is that there are times where we're going to lose something temporarily to serve God permanently. And what this person had that so many of us don't have, even in this moment of angst right now, is he has absolute freedom. He's walking in freedom. He's not walking in bondage. Herod hears that he might be raised from the dead. Herod's freaking out because Herod has all sorts of unresolved issues. He probably has some daddy issues because his dad was a much bigger deal than him, which just in my counseling background helps me read into the fact that that might be why he's so prideful and he's so arrogant and he has to prove his worth to everyone else around him even when he doesn't have the power that he claims to possess. And so Herod, even though it looks like he has everything, is in actuality very much losing. And John, who looks like he has nothing, is playing the long game. And John was willing to lose to win. And the application is just obvious. We have to be willing. It doesn't mean that our head's going to get chopped off. We have to be willing to lose in order to win. That's how this narrative of life plays out when we follow Jesus. Number two, lesson from Herod. John, you have to lose to win. Herod, number two, pride precedes pain. You'll be hard-pressed to find a more prideful character in the pages of Scripture. There's a, there's a lot of them. He's right at the top. Pride always precedes pain. And just think about that in the context of your own life. Pride has John thrown into prison. Pride allowed a drunken party to take place. Pride allowed for a promise to be made to a young stripper. Pride made him keep the promise. Pride put John's head on a platter. Pride ultimately cost Herod his kingdom because years later, in a prideful state, and we know this from history, he gets into this combative relationship with one of his brothers and he gets exiled. It doesn't go well. But here's what I want us to walk in. Pride precedes pain. There is a path of destruction that is paved with pride. In fact, something I think is true, someone told me this in church a while back, and and I kind of investigated on my own, and I found it to be true. Behind every sin, you'll have pride. 
Behind every sin you'll ever commit, there's something deeper rooted that's going on, and it's pride, because in our pride, in our sin, we're saying, God, I can do what I want to do. I'm the one in control, and it's this prideful condition of our heart, and we see this destructive power that pride unleashes in this storyline. John's entire message is repent, repent. There's one coming ahead of me. I'm not even worthy to, work, to, work, to wash his sandals. And Herod is hearing the sermons in the prison cell probably for over a year. He knows that everything that John the Baptist is saying is rubbing him the wrong way, but he keeps coming back for more, and he's starting to like this guy on some level. He's greatly distressed when he has to have his head chopped off. And so the reality is this, that his dissensions have massive consequences, I mean, where are we at as a church? Where are we at individually? Where are we at in our families that we have this freeze-frame moment in our life where we have these decisions that are in front of us, and sometimes they're seemingly small. A lot of times we know in the moment that they're very big, and instead of turning to Christ and surrendering to him, we look at him, and even on a subconscious level, we just kind of go a different direction, and we say, we're going to do what we want to do. And the consequence of our pride is pain. This guy loses everything. A man loses his head that was one of the most godly people that we've ever seen. Jesus says there's no one greater. Here's the third one. Here's the most powerful point that you're going to hear. In fact, I know I tell this to you often, but it's very true today. If you forget everything, if you walk out of church or listening to church this morning. You're like, John the Baptist, what did he do again? He had this head, and there was a stripper, and I don't know what Rodney was talking about. Okay, if you don't know anything else, don't miss this point. This is the money point. This is the rest of the story. The lesson from Jesus is very pointed in this text, and you have to read past this text to get it, but I want all of us to write this down because it is super critical The lesson from Jesus is be careful when he's quiet. It's not when you're feeling the weight of your sin and the weight of your circumstance and knowing and feeling broken that you've gone in the wrong direction. Hear me say this. No one drifts off during this point because it is critical. It's not in that moment that we have to be super concerned. Concerned, yes, but that's actually God's grace on our life. Let me, let me give you kind of a backstory. You guys could probably imagine that with the season of ministry that we're in, that things are pretty intense right now behind the scenes. And, and if you don't realize that, then you probably just don't work with people on any real level for a living. But, but if you know people, you know that when people are scared, when people are living more isolated lifestyles, when people don't have an end in sight, because sometimes no news is worse than bad news. When people have all of these things going on in their lives, you can just assume that people are in pain. And so that's exactly what we've seen. It took a little while to catch up, but it's definitely caught up. And and my schedule has been busier than it's been in a long time with people. And so I've been walking with people through some very intense things. In fact, some of the connection cards are just super intense. They're anonymous, but, but they're in the context of, you know, suicidal ideation and broken marriages. There's a lot of things going on in the body of Christ right now. Lots of pain, but here's the good news. There's lots of healing. There's lots of hope in the midst of, of all these things going on. 
And so I, I've been working through some of these issues with some people as much as possible. And there's this common narrative that I'm going back to. I'm saying, I know it's hard to work through this, but hear me say this, in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of the repentance that's taking place in these core relationships in your life, in the midst of, man, I can't believe this happened or I can't believe I made this decision, here's my word of hope to the people that are coming to me. I'm saying, just so you know, this hard time is actually God's grace in your life because he's revealing to you change that needs to take place. And I said to someone this week, I said, don't be scared when God's speaking to you and he's changing your heart and he's convicting you of sin. Be very scared when he's quiet. When you're doing all of these things that you know are not the will of God and there's just this silence that's carried over your heart and you feel nothing and you hear nothing and you just kind of go about your life like Herod's wife in the storyline, there's no indication that she ever felt any ounce of remorse for chopping this guy's head off. She is in a very much dangerous position before God Almighty. Here, here's why I tell you that story because there's more to the story. And when there's more to the story, we got to take notice because now several chapters later, Herod still hasn't met Jesus face to face. He still hasn't had his question unequivocally answered that Jesus and John the Baptist are not the same person. But as the story fast forward, Jesus is arrested. Pilate doesn't want to deal with Jesus. The Jews want him crucified. And so Pilate does something. He sends him back to the region where Jesus came from. And so now he's again falling under Herod's headship. And he goes before Herod, and I want you to pay careful attention to this interaction right before Jesus goes to the cross. I'm just going to read it to you in Luke 23, verse 6. Don't have to follow me with it. Just hear this story. And when he learned, that's Pilate, that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. There's this moment with Herod and Jesus where he's going, man, whoo, it's not John the Baptist reincarnate. His head really was chopped off. He is in self-preservation mode. He was hoping to see a sign done by Jesus. And so check this out. So he questioned him to some length, but listen, but he made no answer. This mid-level manager has been in self-preservation mode year after year after year. Jesus knows everything he's done. He knows everything he's about. The Bible says that the chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently and accused him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and they mocked him, arraying on him splendid clothing and then they sent him back to Pilate. And the whole time, just get this mental picture in your head before Jesus goes to the cross. This guy who was an antagonist from the beginning, who has his cousin's head chopped off, who actually calls to see Jesus and Jesus denies him access, now has access to Jesus and he starts asking him questions. And how many of you guys know just in difficulty in your own marriage, the most difficult thing someone could do to you that you want to hear from is just to stay quiet. Can you relate to that? Like You can yell at me, but don't ignore me. Herod has this freeze frame moment in time with the Savior of the universe, and it's like these two 
powerful people, Jesus who has actual power, Herod who has imagined power, are coming head to head. Herod is throwing these accusations. Herod is mocking him publicly. Herod is again having this good old boy moment with everyone watching in all of his arrogance. And it's like this prize fight. Imagine in your mind, Jesus looks him dead in the eye and says nothing. The scariest people in the world are quiet. Jesus says nothing, and I just want you to walk away from this point of reference. Be careful when he's quiet. And the reason I tell you that is from a vantage point of hope. Because if the gospel's being proclaimed in this rough season in 2020, if your marriage is on the rocks, if your core relationships are fractured, if your kids are rebelling, whatever your storyline is, if you know there's some things in your own life that are a byproduct of those realities and you're feeling the weight of sin, you're feeling the weight and the heaviness of going, this is God's standard and I haven't even come close. I want you to hear this this morning. God's not saying silent and I know that in your life because you're looking at me right now or you're listening in our online communities right in this moment. God is not staying silent. When you feel nothing, when you hear nothing, be very scared. Jesus says nothing. Jesus goes back to Pilate. Jesus heads towards a cross. Jesus has his flesh ripped from his body. Jesus has nails in his hands and nails in his feet. Jesus has a crown of thorns placed on his head. He dies an innocent death in your place and in my place, takes on the wrath of God. But then three days later, silence is broken. Jesus raises from the dead, and his resurrection power changes absolutely everything in your story, everything in my story, everything in the narrative of the story of man for 2,000 years. Jesus is silent before Herod, but the gospel is this, that he is actively pursuing your heart right now, regardless of what you've done. It's not too late. There's hope in Christ. There's power in the resurrection. And he's looking at his children, who he's called out from darkness into light, and he's saying, man, you have hope in me. It is not too late. Amen? This is a story of pride. This is a story of losing in order to win. And this is a story of silence broken by the resurrective power of Christ. Do you follow this Savior who's calling you out in this moment and not treating you like Herod? He's not being silent, but he's speaking his truth into your life. Do you know this, Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. We could take the place of so many different characters in this scripture. We could look like Herod's wife. We could look like John, who's been wronged. But the reality is a lot of us look like Herod, and a lot of us look like Herod because pride is what's guiding our heart. And so we just praise you. We sing, how great is our God. And we sing how great is our God because you're not a God that's silent to our condition. You're not a God that's given up on us despite our failures. 
You're not a God that's given up on us despite our fears and maybe even lack of faith in the season that we're living. You're a God that actively pursues to the point where you sent your son Jesus to a cross in our place and died the death that we should have died, taking on, God, your wrath of sin, your punishment of sin, and then three days later, you rose him from the dead so that we can have life, and our narrative and our storyline is that you're not silent. I would ask you, Jesus, in this moment, because you're not silent, that we wouldn't be silent. In fact, with every head bowed, every eyes closed, if you're going, man, I am Herod in this storyline. I need Jesus now more than ever. I don't want to miss my window to say, Jesus, you're my Savior. I have sinned against you. I have sinned against the Holy God, but I need your precious blood to forgive me of my sin. I want to follow you with my heart. If that's the condition of your heart, would you just take a moment and just look at me right now in this time? Praise God. Praise God. Put it on your connection cards. There's a lot of you. Reach out to me after service. I'm going to be around. Jesus, you you know what you're doing in the hearts of your people. I pray that the people that are looking at me in this moment are looking on their screens online or looking at Pastor Micah downtown, that right now in this moment we would recognize you as Savior, that you would save, that people would be born again, They'd say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner in need of saving. I've turned my back on you, but I hear your voice this morning. I believe that you took my place on the cross, that you rose from dead so that I can have life. And I commit this morning to following you with my life, with my heart. I repent of my sins. I turn to you for salvation. Today is a day where it starts new because you are the king of my life. Usher and salvation into this place, Jesus. We pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.